So we're going to do something a little bit different, Marker. I think, this week in that we're going to kind of bring media up and then probably not talk about it that much in any concrete terms because the piece of media is not actually out and it's not going to be out for a few more months. But it is Rings of Power. And the reason I bring it up, and it really could have been almost any piece of media. This is just the one that's sort of the newest, I guess, in its discussion of diversity. Uh, Rings of Power is the most expensive TV show ever made, I believe, by an order of magnitude. Quite possibly. Millions, millions, millions of dollars being spent to bring the appendices of the Lord of the Rings to life because they don't have rights to the Silmarillion. Uh, that would be a whole, my... my, my uh, Anxiety as a Tolkien fan is a topic for an entire other episode. But one thing that's been brought up in the discussions about Rings of Power is the issue of diversity. It was brought up in some spectacularly failed attempts at viral marketing involving quote-unquote superfans who discussed with Prime Video the importance of representation on screen. They just did it in a, let's just say, probably not the most thoughtful way. And then the videos mostly got pulled, as I, as far as I'm aware. There's been further discussion of the fact that there will be uh, female orcs and that there are going to be more female present roles, which, again, fairly fair enough that there were not particularly that many female roles in the Lord of the Rings movies. And this has sparked the idea that's come up several times in the last, what do you say, decade? I want to say yeah. this? The idea of representation? Maybe, maybe about a decade that representation matters and who we see on the screen actually matters so oh i mean if, if that's how we're defining it i don't think it's a conversation of just the last decade that's probably been a conversation since honestly since storytelling started right but yes lately it's what? become a firestorm and that is only possible because of the internet i was gonna say i'm not sure if it, i mean i'm sure it's been a conversation in some ways but i think it's been much more of a social conversation since the internet got involved in this and that it's something that even, you know, kids are, are, are here saying, you know, representation matters. Um, I think in a way that wasn't necessarily as prevalent when we were kids. It maybe wasn't present in the larger conversation and by larger, I just mean white. In that, yeah. like, I mean, okay, Mulan came out when I was like a baby, but I remember when I first got to see Mulan and it was a very big deal for the Asian community. And every time there was a movie that featured somebody who looked like me, it was a very big deal in our community. Or a movie, looking at you, Avatar, that specifically slighted people like me. It was a very big deal. But pretty much only for our community and not for anybody else. It hasn't really become a thing that, unfortunately, everybody jumps onto uh, until recently. I think these days there is more of an expectation that something, well, depending on the project, of course, but there is more of an expectation that things will feature a certain amount of diversity because I think the public perception of how the world is is more diverse. And so you get to a point where you, if you have a film that is set in the modern day in, say, New York, and there's nobody except for white people, and it actually looks unrealistic. It looks kind of weird to people, and people start to wonder if there's a point being made. We've said that phrase a couple times, you know, representation matters. What would you say representation means to you, especially as a writer, as somebody who works in this industry? I mean, representation matters is a great catchphrase, I guess. 
but I think a lot of different people use it, and there's I think there might be some nuance to what it means. So what, if, when you say representation matters, what do you what do you think that should mean? Unfortunately, what it means is that a lot of folks don't live in areas where they experience much diversity or diversity of opinion. And so when we say representation matters, at least for me, it means that because you don't see this type of person or this type of character, or this type of opinion represented much, when it does show up, it matters a lot because it's the first time many people will have heard that. Or it's, it's going to be a, a key way in which they see, it will shape their per- perception of that group of people for some time to come. And so therefore there is extra weight that needs to be put on that um, in terms of how you represent certain groups whether they're represented at all, how you represent a world. Media is a big part of how we perceive the world now. Um, And so if you are watching exclusively movies that, just as an example, only feature people of color as as gangsters and villains, then that's going to shape how you see people of color. To me, representation matters just means that we have to, unfortunately, put extra weight onto these representations because they're often the first ones people are seeing. Yeah, fair. I think that's a really good definition. Uh, I guess the only thing I would really add to it is also, um, well, not really add, I guess expand, would be that the quality matters as w- uh, a lot more than the quantity. And I think this is something that's kind of started coming to the forefront of the conversation, maybe not in those words, but I think for a long time people were kind of like, here, we put a black person in the movie. Or here, here's the token ethnicity here. And it wasn't about writing somebody who actually represented the ethnicity or whatever minority group we are discussing. I think the quality has to matter because you're right. These are how people, um, these are how people encounter a lot of outgroups for the first time. There's something called contact theory. Uh, it's a classic social slash personality psychology theory. And the idea is that structured contact contact not contract though contracts are important too but structured contact between groups can reduce prejudice and structured contact between groups can lead to like essentially progress as a society and like small p not nothing to do with like political progressivism per se and for the longest time when when allport the psychologist who who came up with this gordon allport he had this problem in that he said, yes, you need to contact and, and have this contact with other groups. And it was interpreted as a support for busing. If you've like ever read about how that went, like, okay, we're just going to ship a bunch of minority children into a school that's nowhere near their home. That's mostly white. And that will fix racism. And spoiler alert, 50 years later, it did not. Cause it was actually not the right structuring of contact. And in fact, we know that if you have outgroup members present and they're not, if you're not having proper structure to that contact, there aren't rules, there aren't what are called superordinate goals, which is where you have a common uh, viewpoint to give and a common goal together. When you're not actually interacting with them, they're just kind of there. That can actually make prejudice worse. And I bring up the contact hypothesis because there's what's called the parasocial contact hypothesis. And parasocial relationships have kind of become a hot topic recently um, to the point that I think they've kind of left the psych world a little bit and people have heard of them. Have you heard of parasocial relationships before? Aside from conversations with you, no. So clearly it hasn't reached me yet. Okay. Well, I, uh, to be fair, anything that I hear a non-academic say once, I'm like, ah, the people know. <laughs> um, so, 
So a parasocial relationship, the idea of it is that it's 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 the relationship you have with a fictional character, and it's similar it's it's similar to a real life relationship and how you experience it and how it develops. And we're not talking about like people who obsess over fictional characters either, right? We're th- ah, so not fanfiction.net. No, we're talking about like genuine, like, like you feel you have a relationship with the character, um, you know, especially if they're one of your favorite characters. Um, you see yourself in them. You think you'd know how they'd act. So like a great example of this, sorry to keep coming back to it, The Last Jedi. I think one of the reasons why so many people got mad about the way Luke Skywalker was depicted in that movie is they felt that they knew him and that he wouldn't act that way. The same way we we think we know people in our real life, right? Like if you're, I don't know, if, if, if your brother did them, I don't know what the most uncharacteristic thing in the world for him to do might be, decided one day he was gonna become a professional wrestler um, that would you probably be like, what the heck? No, I, I don't believe this. That's insane. Like if 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 my brother decided that some that, that he was gonna you know leave his wife and kid for a professional baseball career, I'm like that that that, that is not something I stay up at night worrying about, right? It's just not something they're gonna do because I have a relationship with my brother and I know who he is. Well, parasocial relationships kind of operate operate the same way, but they're between a real person and a fictional character, albeit. That means that they are unidirectional, right? There's only one direction. Right. And to some extent, you as as the audience member are sort of projecting a little sort onto of, that yeah. character. So you may assume that something is normal for that character that is not actually, or you know, an author may choose to develop a character in ways that you don't feel makes sense. And to some degree there there is logic to it, but I think sometimes there isn't. Yeah, and then sometimes Kathy Bates shows up when the author does that and tells him that he has to fix it or else she's going to hurt him. Um, Is that a threat? (laughs) I forget the name of the Stephen King novel that got adapted. Misery. Misery. I was like, it's not deliverance. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite the opposite. Um, Yeah, misery. But no, and, and you said something earlier, and this is why parasocial relationships and parasocial contact came up to me for this topic, is that people very often encounter minorities for the first time in any real way through their media. Like, sure, we've all, we all may have seen a person of color, but how many of us have people outside our own ethnic group in our own inner circle? Almost none of us, and that's not just talking about white people. That's just kind of the natural human condition. Or how many of us, I think maybe I can stretch that a little further, how many of us have had a really deep personal connection where you know the insides of someone's brain so to speak you know and that person being of a different ethnicity than you i think that's that's what a lot of stories allow us to do is develop like you said these parasocial relationships that are really deep like you really get to know a character because you see them in life or death situations you see them at their best and their worst all within the span of you know one to two hours Three, if some people in Hollywood have their way. James Cameron says there must be bathroom breaks in movies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My sister literally has an app that uh, it's called. I think it's called When Can I Pee. <laughs> it just, <laughs> it's an app that uh, tells you when in a movie is it okay to like run to the bathroom for two minutes and come back. That is because that's how long movies have gotten now. 
that that is fair as a chronic sufferer of kidney stones and some and a lover of movies the amount of i sometimes have to make a choice between my health and knowing what's going on <laughs> in the film hey it's a great app not only does it i'm sorry this is now a plug for this app not, not only does sponsor. it tell you when to leave but it does so without spoilers and then they will tell you like what hap- what is happening while you're gone so that when you come back you won't have missed anything important but they'll find like the least important part of the movie for you to leave and then they'll tell you what happened there anyway. We live in an age of miracles. Truly, it's wonderful. But anyway, so <laughs> leaving aside the issue of when one can pee, we have parasocial <laughs> contact, right? And, and it doesn't have to be with a movie character. So like I would say one of the most powerful examples of this in American history was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what that novel did, even nice northern, wouldn't even think of owning a slave people, had never really viewed the enslaved people of the South as just that people. They didn't understand that they, they, they're humans too. They, they think and feel, which sounds really dumb, but that's kind of what the zeitgeist was of the day, right? And right. there's a reason why when Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, okay, you're, you're the woman who started the Civil War. So that's just a book. Now we think about movies where you're seeing people you're even hearing them because they can do internal monologues and you develop a relationship with them. And that's what's called parasocial contact. You, your, your, your parasocial relationship with this character is serving as your exposure to that person and to that entire group. So what if that's not authentic? I'm trying to think of like a, an example of like that's bad, but not like offensive. Well, or that's not going to make me sound offensive. Um, what if Crazy Rich Asians is your only contact with Asians? Yeah, let's go with that one. Thank you. <laughs> then you think they're all super hot, which, you know, I have no problem with, but you're going to have unrealistic expectations for how hot Asians are. And you're going to think they're all wealthy. Like, my, I, I remember being excited to watch Crazy Rich Asians because it was the first movie with a predominantly Asian cast since, get this, Joy Luck Club to go I, I don't like, even that know what big. that is. The fact, see, this is, Joy Luck Club was, okay, you know, I'm not going to get into a long discussion about Joy Luck Club. That was the I'll one Google movie it. that Asians had for a very <laughs> long time, that, that Asian Americans had, and it's wonderful. Uh, but like between, yeah, 1990, whenever that movie was made, and Crazy Rich Asians, there's a very, very long, you know, span of time. So I was excited when, when Crazy Rich Asians was, was starting press releases and stuff. And I remember turning to my parents and being like, aren't you excited? And my dad said, no. And I was like, why? My dad said, people are going to think we're just rich, spoiled brats now. That was his take. Like, it wasn't, oh, I'm so excited for another Asian movie. His take was, this is the only, like you said, the only parasocial contact that many people are going to have with Asians. And it portrays us as filthy rich well you i mean you can yell at me if 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 this is out of line but i i would say you'd also use that your dad kind of has a point because think about like the stereotypes surrounding asian americans like what's the most common one is that you all know martial arts because what were the only movies that asian americans had any representation in that also made any sort of social impact bruce lee films yeah and jackie chan films yeah and I mean, I, I, it's you pick pick an ethnicity. It's not hard to find a bad example because most of the mo- depictions of, of ethnicities beyond just generic Anglo-Saxon have mm-hmm. been um, pretty uh, non-representative, even within generic Anglo-Saxon. Like 
the first time I went to the deep south, uh, like when I was like 15 or 16, I was kind of surprised that I didn't, you know, I was surprised that I wasn't in deliverance. See, now I've referenced it appropriately. Because like any group that you are not familiar with, if you encounter them through a bad way, you're going to have a, what's called a schema, a cognitive representation of them that is inaccurate. So for me, the question of representation mattering in front of the camera is it's not a question. I, I think it's just some people being stubborn and, and, and threatened. Now we can talk about what is authentic representation versus what is not authentic representation. And I'm sure we're going to get a chance to, to do that in, in probably more movies and films and, and, and TV shows than we can ever shake a stick at. But something else that has been brought up in this with Rings of Power, a few other movies recently, is the behind the camera work. And this is where I would really like to hear from you, because you mentioned this when we were discussing Obi-Wan, and you've mentioned this in a lot of the conversations we've had about a lot of different films and TVs over the years. It's not just having a character who's a person of color or who's, you know, from a lower socioeconomic status or whatever. It's about how they're written. So how do you see representation playing into behind-the-camera work, especially writing, and what are some of the big like strengths and weaknesses and challenges you see in that oof i mean that's a that's a big question i think ultimately representation in storytelling has to start behind the camera right you can't just stick someone of a particular skin tone into a role and be like great we have achieved authentic diversity that's that's not what diversity is about it's not just about authentic skin tone it's about authentic culture it's about an authentic voice and that comes from writing. That comes from the way that we craft a story. And so having representation in the writer's room or, or in even the, um, the group of executives that helps push the movie forward, that's really the first step. Um, and I think oftentimes we forget that. Part of what makes it challenging, though, is, and this is me just going off on a little tangent about the way that Hollywood works, Hollywood works largely by connections, right? It's all about who you know and who you're friends with and who they're friends with. And unfortunately, like you pointed out, a lot of folks, aside from the parasocial relationships, they don't have a great diversity in their friends, which means that frequently the people who get hired are just the friends of the people in charge. And that means that if the people in charge are you know, 40-something-year-old white men. They're going to hire their 40-year-old, you know, white men, male friends. Um, and they're less likely to hire, say, a 20-something-year-old black woman, not because they hate her, but just because they don't know her. Uh, and, and that's part of the... It's one of the many hurdles that younger people, people of color, people from more marginalized communities have trouble with in Hollywood is that they can't get their foot in the door because they don't know anybody. So representation really does start from writing, starts from character. And I think if you're not beginning there, you're going to create that sort of like cardboard cutout, tough female character who's really just a male character that they dressed in a skirt and long hair. That's not authentic female representation. That's, that's just you needed a woman so you could check a box. And lo and behold, that's what you've done. So when you have people who aren't authentically writing minority characters, you, you tend to get one of two things. You, you either get like a really bad stereotype 
or you get the sort of like white person but in a costume um like we were talking about and when i say bad stereotype i don't just mean a negative stereotype i also just mean like a stereotype that's unhelpful right the smart asian kid the doctors are always the doctors are always asian for some reason we're always doctors um it's just because it, that's what we that's what a non-asian writer would know so they just write that because it's easier and they don't have another voice in the room to be like hey we do other things we behave differently and sometimes we behave poorly like I, it's for a long time in hollywood there was a stereotype which was like this large gentle giant black male character who is always a victim of something oh it's this this gentle soul who's maybe a little stupid but would never hurt a fly and you feel really bad for this character by the time they die or and he's always um, played by michael clark duncan Yes, he's always played by Michael Clark Duncan, God rest, rest his soul. Yeah. Or like the, the sassy black friend. Like they're always like really, they're super, super positive, right? And they're meant to combat racism and maybe in, to some extent they do. But that becomes like the only perception we have of them, right? It's like the gay best friend. It's like we only ever perceive gay people as the gay best friend because we've seen that character written so many times because... Of course, people want a positive representation. They're not monsters, but they also don't know how to write anything other than a very flat, positive representation. Well, I think that's the the key, right, is authentic representation. And authentic means okay. that you have to, yeah, you have to be able to see people in the, in the diversity of types of characters they can be, not just in the diversity of the skin tone. One of my favorite Roger Ebert stories is uh, when Justin, Justin Lin, and he of, you know, Fast and Furious fame, one of his very early films was a movie called Better Luck Tomorrow. Um, it was this small indie film about a bunch of Asian American students in Orange County who do crimes. <laughs> like, they, they, they cheat, they do drugs, they're sort of, they don't, they don't conform to the stereotype of these, like, dutiful, nerdy Asian kids. They, in fact, are quite the opposite. Um, and he was writing from his experiences he was writing from what he from what he knows and the film got criticism I, uh, there was a screening where somebody at a Q&A stood up and said well aren't you not ashamed I can't remember exactly what they said but they said like I mean essentially isn't it bad that you're like this is one of the few representations we have of Asian people and they're it's so negative like they do crime isn't that like shouldn't you not be writing that and Roger Ebert, also God rest his soul, stood up and like soundly verbally slapped this man for saying that because he said you would never say that about a white, a, a white film or a group of white characters in a film behaving this way. You would never say that about a group of white people. So why are you saying that about these people? What makes you think that the only representation Asians should have is this intensely positive, nerdy one-dimensional thing so i know you said earlier that like quality you, you said quality matters more than you know quality over quantity i actually do think quantity matters quality does matter but you you also need a wide variety in terms of the type of quality and you need and, and unless we have more stories featuring black people more stories featuring hispanic store hispanic people there is going to be this weird pedestal problem where we're like, well, is this the thing we need right now? Is this going to be the one piece of representation that defines everyone's perception for the next, you know, 30 years? 
Um, thankfully, we're in a stage where that no longer has to be the case. But it is that weird seesaw. We started this discussion talking about how important it is that we fine tune and, and make very authentic the representation that we have. But also, we would love to reach a stage where we no longer have to do that. <laughs> Where any type of representation is okay. Like you can make a mediocre female superhero movie and it doesn't tank superhero movies for like female superheroes. That's like the marker of you know that this minority group has made it is when you can make a mediocre film and it doesn't cause everyone to be like, well, that's it. We're not doing a female superhero ever again. I think you do see that though to kind of bring this together and how you see people talking about older movies. So like one one example would be how people talk about the rush hour films mm-hmm. like no a lot of people don't feel the need to get mad at chris tucker and jackie chan for what were you know at the time big you know the, the, it, it was a, it was a movie led by two persons of color that was a big deal but now we've kind of moved past a very stereotype kind of cheap humor driven movie i don't know about you my my sister still regularly watches Rush Hour as like her comfort film. Um, I okay, like I said too much about my sister this time. I, I was, I, time I mean, I, 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 I can, I can watch one Chris Tucker movie, and it's The Fifth Element. I don't, I don't really watch it for Chris Tucker. I watch it more for Jackie Chan because I actually think it's pretty decent Asian representation. But the thing about the thing about the Rush Hour movies and the reason we don't like look back on them and just go, oh, what a terrible whatever is that like frankly they were fun they were fun movies (laughs) and they were fun characters and they didn't feel cardboard like they they were they were funny and 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 funny actually wins you a lot of points i mean to to take this back to what you were saying about that sort of like structured contact i think that's a big that's like a part of it that we often forget is that like in the structured contact we need to be having fun. We have to be enjoying our time with these people. Because if we're hating it, then yeah, of course we're never going to want to see them again. Yeah, and I think that kind of drives at why we need representation behind the camera in writers' rooms and, and directors' rooms. Direct- do directors have rooms? Directors? Not really. <laughs> they're, they're very much solo operators. Directors' chairs. Yes, director's, director's chairs. Director's chairs. That's the, that's the, the, the domicile. Director's of, trailers. Director's tra- <laughs> Wherever directors do dwell, uh, we, we need people behind the camera because that, that's going to drive the authenticity that makes something fun, I think, is that you, there, people can kind of tell when something's sort of real. Uh, yeah. People have this, pe- people may not know that they're detecting it, but people are actually, we're pretty good at detecting authenticity. Looking, I've been looking at the authenticity literature lately. We have a pretty good sense innately as humans for when someone's BSing us. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, at the individual level, all of us could stand to have that sense sharpened, but we tend to know. And I think that that's what makes... I'm not saying like when we see an unauthentic movie, we go, I'm being BS, because I don't think people are that good at detecting. But I think instead, when we see something that is authentic, that's written and directed by somebody who co- and acted by people who come from that place where this is something they care about and a story they want to tell, I think that's communicated. You see that all the time in movies that have nothing to do with diversity. Or actually, I was, okay, so I'm going to talk about Fury Road. And as soon as I mentioned Fury Road, I'm like, actually, it was a woman-led movie. But um, I've been a huge fan of the Mad Max movies for most of my life. I love the Mad Max movies, and everyone made fun of me 
everyone made fun of me when 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 Fury Road was coming out, and I'm like, oh, we're gonna see it. Like this is gonna be awesome. But everyone loved Fury Road because it was George Miller's passion project. It was his return to a 30-year-old franchise. His love for that movie just oozed out of it. And so people fell in love with it. And it, it, like, it won a ton of awards. And people are now like, now they're making a prequel. And I don't think that's going to be, you know, we'll see how yeah. that goes. But it, 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 it worked. And I think you see that in movies. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, and, and there's an example of a like of a of a male director who is directing a female-driven movie, and it still feels like an authentically female movie. So this is not to say that we can only have black directors directing black stories. This is to say, do your research and listen to the people around you. Like I I don't know terribly much about George Miller, but it really feels like he has spent a lot of time listening and, and understanding the plight of women and. Um, Charlize there and I know had a decent amount of input in how she was portrayed within the film like there's a scene and forgive me it's been a while since I've seen Fury Road but there's a scene where I think she just like walks off and then just like yells yeah she collapses and screams yeah that was entirely Charlize Theron's idea she wanted to do it she felt it would work for her character and George Miller let her and it's a powerful moment that's a big part of achieving that authenticity I don't think you have to say, oh, I, I'm only these character traits, I'm only this gender and this race, and so I can only tell those kinds of stories. No, it's just you have to listen, you have to be willing to do the research. People feel an authenticity, going all the way back to Tolkien, people feel an authenticity coming from his works. His works are fantasy. They don't exist, those people, and yet we feel like his works feel are authentic. Why? Because he has done acres of research. <laughs> possibly quite literal acres of research to make sure that these things are grounded in something that feels real and, and complex and deep. And that's why we get a sense of, of familiarity with his works. We feel like we're coming home when we read his works, even though he's talking about a place we've never been to. So sorry, that was, that was my rant about mm. Tolkien, I'm done. Also, fun fact, George Miller directed Happy Feet. I was literally going to bring that up I was going to say, like, uh, no one knows anything about him. The man from, went from directing movies about a post-apocalyptic wasteland to b- a movie about a talking pig, because he directed Babe, I believe. The man pivots, and he pivots well. No, the range that George Miller has, I, I deeply envy. And also, if you watch Happy Feet and you look at the camera work, you recognize Mad Max in it. It's pretty wild. But, like, the amount, the, the type of camera work he's doing to cover a dance sequence versus a fight sequence is exactly the same. And not just for the scene where a penguin spray paints fates silver and screams that it will see you on the Fury Road. <laughs> so if you had to pick them like, off the top of your head, and I'm making you go first because if I have to answer my own question, I'm going to need the time. Um, but, <laughs> but if you Feels had like to, a you problem. Yeah, if you had to pick a, movie, or a couple movies that you think really did representation well... What do you think they would be? Hmm. Or TV shows, either or. Movies that I think, movies and TV shows that I think did representation well. One film that I know did wonders for me in terms of of how I perceived uh, people who were different from me was Get Out. I know that feels like a cop out answer, but Get Out was a film where you know I I have read I've read stories about black people. I am friends with black people. I had never viscerally understood 
the discomfort and fear that some black people feel around certain folks, around cops. I had never understood it on an emotional level until I watched Get Out. There's a power to horror films in that you cannot help but be in the protagonist's shoes because you're afraid of them dying the whole movie. Um, and there's a moment, not that I, if I have to give you a spoiler warning for a movie as old as get out, just go. Yeah. Just leave. Um, but there's a moment near the end of get out where like he's managed to make it out of the basement. He's managed to defeat all most of the bad guys. Most of them he's are dead now. And he's trying to slowly crawl his way to freedom. And then you hear the sirens and normally when you hear cops coming in a horror movie, you're like, yay, the cops are here. They're going to fix everything. But you take one look at his situation. You look at him covered in blood. You look at these four wealthy white people covered in blood and, and you realize how this looks. And also we've had an encounter with cops earlier in the movie and you remember how he was treated then. You hear sirens and, and you see the, you know, you see the blue and red flashing. You hear it coming. It, it's, it's the first time in, in a in a movie where I heard cops coming and went, my heart just like sank down to my knees. And after I finished that movie and I left, I was like, oh, oh, I get it. I that's what that feels like for people. Because usually I don't. I have like a neutral to slightly negative, like annoyed feeling when I see a cop behind me. Um, and and, and this completely like on an emotional level, because I knew on a practical, I knew on like a technical level, how some black folks feel around cops. This was the first time I understood on an emotional level. And so I think that for me was an extremely impactful um, instance of representation where I, I was made to understand a perspective I hadn't previously understood. All right, that should have been enough of me talking to allow you to have an answer. So I'm gonna pull a cheap one and talk about my own ethnicity but um the movie everyone always thinks that jewish movie go first movie comes into your head schindler's list okay it was it's either that or fiddler on the roof and growing up it was fiddler on the roof because most right. kids shouldn't be seeing <laughs> most kids should Agreed. not be seeing schindler's list but there are two movies and both of them star daniel craig as a jewish person which is just wild to me we love you daniel craig but you're not jewish <laughs> to be fair blue eyes are a jewish trait they come from neanderthals neanderthals had a huge settlement in like golan heights in israel like that is the thing that being said i feel exactly. like you've researched that too much the two hobbies two hobbies come together but I, I like paleontology and i like Jew jewishness anyway um two my two movies would be munich by, which is a Spielberg movie, like Schindler's List, and um, Defiance. And Defi I actually like Defiance a little bit better because that's sort of more in what my family's history was. You know, there, there's the there's the whole, oh, we survived the Holocaust movie that a lot of people kind of, like the, the whole... Um, the whole contact with the Holocaust that a lot of people have is maybe they had to struggle their way through the, uh, the diary of Anne Frank... Uh, which probably didn't leave much of an impact on them. And then, you know, Nazis are, th are the people Indiana Jones punches. And for me, it's like the, the weight of the Holocaust and like the research of behind collective trauma and the experience of collective trauma is something like that. I, I don't know if it can be communicated orally. Just frankly, I don't think it can. But that mo those movies were both written by people 
defiance actually about the Holocaust, Munich, about the struggles of, of being a Zionist and like returning to an ancestral homeland that other people have been living in for 2000 years and you can't just kick them out. And in both cases, it was complicated, but it, 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 it had this, that shine of realism to it. And it made me think and, and it made me consider my own identity in a way I hadn't because both movie, well, uh, I watched both movies when I was in high school. Munich came out when I was a little younger, but then I got a chance to watch it. And they, they, they speak to me and, they, and they've continued to speak to me years later because these are, these are struggles and these are questions that are just a fundamental part of Jewish identity. Why did the Holocaust happen? Who knows? Like there are literally thousands of pages written by Jewish philosophers. My entire field of social psychology was founded by, by the descendants and relatives of, of Holocaust survivors, survivors asking why. It's actually wrestling with the real questions that you wouldn't know were things that were wrestled with or that are part of what it means to be Jewish if you weren't Jewish or at least had not spent a lot of time around Jewish people. So those are, those are, I could probably think of other ones, but those are ones that definitely struck out and spoke to me because it was something, even in my own experience of what it was to be Jewish these were not things that we really talked about, and yet I could encounter them in a movie right. in a way I hadn't before. And I think those are, those are bo- both the example I gave and the examples you gave are examples of the type of representation that is designed to teach people something they didn't know about a specific culture, about a specific group of people. There's another kind of representation that I don't think we've talked about yet, and I'm sorry I'm stretching this podcast out, which is the normalization and that's it's it's tainted now but the cosby show is another hugely impactful piece of representation in that it was the first time you were seeing really a black family as sitcom characters like not as victims not as like side characters but they were just everyday people right the dad's a doctor kids go to school they have regular like i want to be popular like the cool kids and i want to buy this shirt but it's really expensive and what am i going to do about it my sister offers to make me a shirt they have all these like very normal struggles but it's portrayed as you know we are we're just like folks right we're we're just like everybody not just like everybody else they do have episodes where they they delve a little bit more specifically into black culture but it was a show that that really opened the door, I think, for a, a lot of folks to help understand and, and normalize the concept of, of, it sounds terrible, but black people being people, just, just people. Um, and again, the show, is, the show is tainted now, but I, I think normalization is also a really big part of representation. And so while there is representation that highlights the specific struggles that certain groups have, and those are really important, the normalization aspect of it, I think, is just as important. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny, and actually that's sort of an appropriate note to end on in a lot of ways because The Cosby Show was directly inspired by contact theory, by intergroup contact theory. Really? Like, like um, I didn't know that. Cosby is a piece of human refuse. Mm-hmm. That being said, he was conscientious in how he wanted black people to be depicted on his show and on all his shows, and he did consult with psychologists on how they were being represented, and that was something that was very intentional. You know, these are going to be some people's only experience with black people, so the stereotypes are going to go out the window. We can't rely on those. We're, how about we just show you as people? And for the longest time, like, I, uh, 
I've, I've taught social psychology at this point long enough, which is weird because I'm not even 30, but I've been teaching it for like that long enough at this point that I have three different editions of the same textbook. And the, it's, it's a very noted shift. It's like, ah, oh, the Cosby show, the Cosby show, many television shows, <laughs> um, <laughs> the but edit. it's, but it's a good example. Yeah. Um, and you can you can go to I think Mr. Rogers Neighborhood also does a similar thing with um, a mailman character who is black. Mm-hmm. There's a very conscious inclusion, but these things have to be conscious when they're our first contact. Yeah, and I guess I don't really have a clever way to say it, but that that is why to me I don't understand why representation matters is controversial because to me it it's, it seems kind of like a no brainer that like yeah. This, this isn't a political statement. I think it's it's a difference from, hey, our entertainment is just entertaining us. And, and hey, the entertainment is, why is the entertainment challenging me? Why is it making me think things? I don't expect this from my entertainment. Well, they're both making you think things. One of them is just chal- making you think different things and potentially asking you to change certain things that you think. Whereas the other one is saying, yes, I'm going to actively encourage you to keep thinking what you were already thinking. Right. Well, once again, if anyone has any questions, comments, nasty comments, insults, whatever, we have the podcast email at psychandcinema at gmail.com. We are officially uh, Apple uh, present on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts now, too. So... That's fun. And yeah, we'll be back in the next two weeks to talk about other movie, television, entertainment related topics. So until then, insert Insert clever clever ending. ending. Bye, guys.